Let me invite you to find a Bible and to turn in it to Hebrews chapter 3 as we continue to examine this wonderful letter that is all about Christ and about how if we fix our gaze upon Christ and set our affections and minds upon Christ, then we will be well equipped for the living of the Christian life. We're going to be considering this morning Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. That is down to the end of chapter 3. And the section that is before us this morning is the second warning passage of this letter. There are other warnings still to come. Uh, and, And sometimes these warnings pose some difficulty in interpretation and they cause some Christians some concern. And I hope to be able to address those concerns this morning. Uh, This is a wonderful passage. This is an encouraging passage, although it is a great warning against sin. Uh, It should be for us Christians, those who believe in Christ, a great encouragement to continue to believe in the one that can save us and that has saved us. The one to whom and through whom the promised blessings of God flow. And that is that they flow to us that have been united in Christ. The author has been exalting Jesus Christ as enough for these Jewish Christians for some time now. Remember that this letter is written to those believers in Christ, at least by profession, those Jews that had come out of Judaism and into Christianity. That is, that they had forsaken their hope in salvation and according to the law and keeping of the law, being good enough, and had embraced the truth of the gospel that salvation is by faith in Jesus Christ alone, that he has taken the punishment for our sin and has received uh, the, the, the blessings of God and will receive the blessings of God that will flow to us if we are by faith united with Christ as brothers, heirs of those promises. So they've come to believe in the gospel. They've come to trust in Christ. But as they're walking through the difficulties of the Christian life, As with you and I, they are tempted to unbelief. They they are tempted to begin to wonder whether or not Jesus really is enough. Whether or not Jesus Christ alone can satisfy the deepest longings and needs of their souls and of their lives. They are tempted to begin to wonder and to look elsewhere for the, the hope and the needs that, that, that are present in their hearts and in their minds. Friends, while we may not have come out of Judaism, while we may not be tempted to return to that way of life or that religious tradition, we are all tempted in the same way alike. Whatever it is that we are prone to turn to, to find security and hope and satisfaction, the place where we go when our needs go unmet, and when the difficulties of life weigh heavy upon us, wherever we turn, that is the temptation that we face, and it is the temptation to trust in those things rather than in Jesus Christ, who alone is sufficient. And the testimony of the Bible is that no matter where we turn, that we will always be left wanting unless we turn to Jesus. And that's been the the testimony of the author of this letter, and he will continue with his arguments to that end and at the end of Hebrews chapter 3, and he will bring to them a stern warning. 
a stern warning that we'll find in verse 12 to take care lest we be found with an evil and unbelieving heart. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer and then let's turn to these verses together. <clears throat> oh Lord our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this testimony that you have given that leads us in the paths of righteousness. We thank you for this testimony that you have given that teaches us about Jesus Christ and his supremacy over all things. That he alone is able to save us and restore us into a relationship with you. And we pray that from these verses now that you would reveal Christ to us in such a way that we would be encouraged to trust in him and in him only. In his name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. He says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. The first thing that I want us to consider from this passage is the danger of the Christian life. The danger of the Christian life. And as I said a moment ago, this is the second warning that comes to us in this letter written to these Jewish Christians. There are other warnings yet to come, but the warning is found in verse 12. That we take care, lest there be in any of us, found in any of us, an evil, unbelieving heart. I said a moment ago that many Christians are bothered by these uh, warnings. Sometimes Christians read the warnings of the book of Hebrews, as this one that is before us this morning. And they come wondering after they read these warnings and then they examine their own life and heart and they see the prevalence of sin that is still raging in their mind and in their life. And, and they come wondering, oh no, have I fallen away? Am I no longer saved? I continue in sin um, and, and, and they begin to be troubled deeply. And I, and I think, friends, I know that that is a misunderstanding and a misapplication of the text. Uh, there are a couple of things that help us, I think, in rightly understanding the warning that comes and what it means to have an evil, unbelieving heart that leads us to fall away from the living God. The first thing that we have to remember is that this text is taken, this quotation, some of your 
past, some of your translations may have it in capital letters, some of it may have it in quotation marks, one way or another, it's identifying this. You need to know that this is a quotation by the author from the Old Testament scriptures. So this is a, a, a text that is found in Psalm 95. And essentially what we have then in Hebrews chapter 3 at the end here, and even into the beginning of chapter 4, is the author's uh, interpretation and application of Psalm 95. Now that, that's very important, and we'll see some other things about the, the, the significance of the use of a New Testament author and writer and Christian of an Old Testament scripture and text uh, when, when we get down a, a couple of points later. But for now, what I think it's important that we understand is that since this is taken from the Old Testament scriptures, it helps us to see and understand that this is a warning that comes primarily to Christians, to the church. Notice what he says in verse 12, take care brothers. He is referring to those Christians who have tasted and seen something of the gospel. And have professed in some way to believe with their mouth. It is those Christians who have in some way begun the process of walking the Christian life. We've said again and again and again that this book is holding Jesus before us. In order that we might value him as he should be supremely above all things. But also that with our eyes fixed upon him we might be successful if you will in walking or living the Christian life well and honoring God through it. And we must understand that these are those Christians who are in some way seeking to lead the Christian life well. Take care, brothers, lest this happen in your life. It's taken from Psalm 95. The word of God is written for the people of God. We know that it is only in accord with the Holy Spirit that the word of God can be made known to the human heart and the Sinful mind can be open to its truths. In other words, the author of this letter is recognizing that walking the Christian life is extremely difficult. And that as we walk through the Christian life, these Jewish Christians and us also, we are going to face trials of various kinds. And in the midst of those trials, the temptation will be that we will not trust in Jesus, but we will trust in something else. He has gone to great lengths to this point in this letter to tell us that Jesus is superior to any prior revelation that is from the prophets of old. That Jesus is superior to the angels, the angelic and heavenly beings, the hosts of heaven. That Jesus is greater than Moses, who coincidentally is the one who was leading the children of Israel at the time uh, of this reference in Psalm 95. And so his, his point is that we are to be encouraged to keep on believing. Don't stop believing. Continue hoping in Christ. Continue looking to Christ. That as you walk the Christian life, do not fall into this temptation. Do not fall prey to this temptation. Do not fall into unbelief. He recognizes that the, the Christian life is extremely difficult. That persecutions and difficulties and stresses that they absolutely will come as they did for Christ and that there is going to be a great temptation for those who are trusting in Christ to begin to wonder whether or not Christ is enough. These Christians would have been tempted probably to return to Judaism and he is trying to help encourage them that that is not the case. Notice here also what he appeals to. What is it in Psalm 95 that he uses as an example? Well, if we go back to Psalm 95, 
which I think is appropriate, you can listen along, you're going to find that there is a little bit different language. In Psalm 95, beginning at the end of verse 7, he says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So there's this language of Meribah and Massah. That is the, the name, the, the Hebrew name that was given to the place. And that those names mean certain things in Hebrew, but the place of testing, right? The place of grumbling, so, so, so what is it that he's referring to when we heard his voice, but yet the children of Israel hardened their hearts in rebelling and in disbelieving or unbelieving God and provoked him to an entire generation? Well, let's, let's go back. It goes all the way back to when the Israelites were in Egypt. So, so the Israelites are in captivity in Egypt, God's people. They're in bondage. They're daily beaten. They are regularly starved. They are separated from their families. They are mistreated. They do not have money. They do not have any of the things that one would associate with a meaningful, a joyful, and a happy life, at least of temporal circumstances. It is one of the worst situations that you can possibly imagine and one of the most difficult uh, places that a human being could exist as as an utter slave and, and, and one mistreated at that. So God in his care and wisdom, he raises up Moses and Moses goes to Egypt and he declares unto Pharaoh that he is going to lead God's people out. And then you remember what happened on that fateful night as the Israelites rested, having hung lamb over their doorposts and shed the blood that God commanded that they shed. As they rested peacefully, the blood began to flow. And the Egyptians began to cry out because God had slaughtered all of the firstborns in Egypt. As he brought his judgment upon them because of the bondage that they held his people in. And so Pharaoh comes and tells Moses, take them and get them out of here. And they begin to systematically depart by God's hand, miraculously out of the land of Egypt, having had all of their firstborn spared according to the promise of God. As they go... You remember the great miracle of God placing a pillar before them that was a pillar of smoke, provided shade and leadership for them by day, and then a brilliant pillar that turned to fire by night. So it gave them light and perhaps warmth. And as he led them in that way, and you can think about as he led them over into the wilderness, they came to the Red Sea. And you can picture them standing before the chasm, the, 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 the expanse that stood between them and freedom with the pursuing Egyptian armies on their backs. And as they look up at the wall of water, as God stops the flow of that river, they walk across on dry land only to get to the other side and to see that God takes the same wall of water and shuts it over the Egyptian armies. Then as they walk out into the wilderness, they realize it's hot and it's dusty and they're thirsty. And friends, they begin to grumble. They begin to grumble at Moses. They begin to grumble at God. And you know what they do? They begin to long for Egypt. 
Friends, that is astonishing. All that they had seen God do, all of the sweetness and the grace of his kindness and favor toward them, they had tasted. But as they sipped of the grace and favor of God, at some point out in the wilderness, they spit it out. And rather than drink deeply of his grace and favor, they longed for hope and security in the brutal conditions of Egypt. Do you see what had happened? The issue was not that they spoke to Moses incorrectly. The issue was not that necessarily that Moses struck the rock too many times or that they demanded water. See, see, there was a sin that led to all of those sins. And friends, that is the case for us also. So many times we think that the problem of our life is our disobedience and our poor behavior. But what we must understand is that there is a sin that leads to a plethora of sins. That the disobedience of our life, that the sin on a daily basis, that that is evidence of something going on inwardly. That the sins of our life point to the sin of our heart. And in this case, the example that he's using, he is saying that rather than trust in the God that had showed them his power, they refused him and rejected him completely. Do you see that the example is not of some small, and and I use that word very gently, recurring individual sin in any individual's life. But this is one of the most catastrophic, blatant, willful failures and disbeliefs in Christian history. They'd experienced and tasted of the power and favor of God in a way that no other people had. And and perhaps that no other people ever have, at least in that same way. And they get out into the difficulties of walking with him and they turn their back on him wholly. Now, friends, I, I, I point all of that out to encourage you. That the point of this warning then is not to make you question whether or not you are the Lord's because you see the battle with sin ongoing in your life. Listen, the sin and the struggle with sin that we have as Christians, number one, is permanent. It is a struggle that will continue until the day that we die or until Jesus comes to get us. That will never cease. We sin willfully. We sin in ways that we do not even know. But we have a faithful high priest in Christ. And this passage is not calling us to question Whether or not we are the Lord, simply because we are fighting with sin in our life, it is calling us to recognize the difference in fighting with sin and embracing sin completely. Do you see see that not only is that sin, number one, that struggle with sin going to be permanent in our life, number two, it should be a great encouragement to you, actually, that you are a Christian. You know why? Why? Because unbelievers do not concern themselves with their sin. They love it. They embrace it. 
They fill their life with it. They want more of it. And they find hope and satisfaction in the midst of their wickedness. But for the Christian, where sin may remain, certainly does remain. For the Christian who is truly the Lord's, that has truly been united with Christ, we will hate our sin even though it remains. We will labor together and struggle with the Word and with the Spirit to put that sin to death in our life. And so the reality of that, the reality of that struggle, that ongoing struggle, rather than discourage us by way of this warning that we are not God's, it should encourage us that we are His indeed. So, so what is the warning? What's well, to take care, brothers? Lest, like the children of Israel who had tasted and experienced and seen something of God and His mercy and His power, lest like them there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart, What is the sin that led them to the sins that they committed? It was the sin of distrust. It was the evil, wicked, unbelief in their heart that led them astray. Notice, lest there be in any of us an evil, unbelieving heart that leads us to fall away from the living God. You say, well, what does that look like? Friends, I can tell you one thing for all of you here. While I cannot judge your heart, What I do know for certain is that in the providence of God, you have all been given to hear the gospel. In some small way, more than many others, you have been given to taste and see something of his grace and favor. You have relationships with Christians. Many of you exist and continue in Christian homes and families. You come and hear Christian Sunday school lessons and sermons about Christ and the gospel. You have been given and God has bestowed upon you so many of his graces by his power and his spirit. We have been given to taste and see. The question, friends, is are we going to drink deeply of the grace of God manifest to us through all of these means and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we going to embrace, believe, and trust in him and look to him for hope, security, satisfaction, and salvation? Or in tasting, are we going to see and think and believe that it is not enough? Spit it out and turn and go our way. That's the question. Friends, his encouragement is for those of us that have been given to taste and see. That in the providence and the care and the mercy and the kindness of God, we have been shown something of the gospel. When life gets difficult, when walking the Christian life causes us to begin to wonder. He tells us, take care, lest we be found having an unbelieving and evil heart. Why? Because in the midst of those difficulties, if we begin to think that Jesus is not sufficient and and that God and his grace through the gospel is not enough, then we will pursue other means other means of hope and satisfaction and ultimately salvation. And friends, if that is the case, we will be lost. We will be lost. So that's the danger of the Christian life, the temptation that exists. But the author of this letter does not leave any room for question about this dilemma and how this dilemma is to be solved and where the true hope and satisfaction and salvation lies. The second thing I want us to consider is the hope that we have for the Christian life. Notice something very small, but I don't want you to miss it. Something very, maybe easy to miss that he says at the end of verse 
13. As, as he comes down and he encourages us to exhort one another, and we'll come back to that every single day, so that none of us may be hardened, what? Look here. By the deceitfulness of sin. The first thing that I want you to notice, as we try to understand where he teaches our hope is in the difficulties of this life, is that he makes clear that the hope, the joy, the peace, and the life that sin promises, by which we are so easily enticed away from Christ, the promises of sin, that they are lies. Notice that these Israelites and the warning to us that we not be like them, that they were led away into unbelief by the deceitfulness of sin, that it wrote a check that it could not cash, that it made a promise that it could not keep. Friends, sin looks better than it is. It tastes better at the first than it does at the last. Ask anyone that's been involved in it. The promises that it makes... The happiness that it says it can give, the joy that it provides, at best is momentary. It will never last. The satisfaction that it says it can give, it will never be so. And whatever hope we find in it for the moment leads to destruction, death, and despair in the morning. Notice very carefully that they were led astray by the deceitfulness of sin. What's he saying? That they are lies. That the hope that we need and have for the difficulties of the Christian life, that they will never be found in sin. They will never be found in unbelief, in wickedness, and in evil. The question then is, where are they to be found? Again, he leaves no room for uh, uh, uncertainty here. Notice what follows immediately in verse 14. What is set opposite the deceitfulness of sin? For we have come to share in Christ. Now, there's no need for him to elaborate at this point on what that means. Why? Because for two chapters now, he's been elaborating on what it means to share in Christ, to be united with Christ, to have our names written in the book alongside Christ, to experience the promises that flow from God to us through the person and work of Christ. All of those things that he said, he's now encouraging them. The sin that you think satisfies cannot. Do not be led astray by its lies and deceit. Rather look to Jesus. For we share in Christ. We have come to share in Christ. So he says, if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. That is the evidence that we are Christ's, that he is ours, and that he will not have heaven without us. When we do not lose hope, when we do not lose heart, when we are not led astray, when there is no unbelieving evil heart found in us. That does not mean that there's no sin found in us, but it means that we embrace with all that we have the truth of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is our hope to be found in the Christian life? Friends, it is not to be found in sin. It's a lie. It's a lie. I'm not going to tell you that there's no joy to be found in sin, that there's no fun to be found in sin, that there's no satisfaction to be found in sin. It may satisfy you for today. It may satisfy you for a month. Friends, it may satisfy you for 10 years. But when you die, even if only then, you will be left wanting if you are trusting in any other than Christ. He is our hope for the Christian life. Finally, two encouragements 
How are we to find this hope and this steadfastness in the midst of such difficulty in the Christian life? How are we to embrace with all of our being Jesus and Jesus only? He gives us two encouragements that help us in living the Christian life in this way, not to fall away into unbelief, not to give in to the lies of sin and the evil one, but to embrace Jesus Christ wholly. The first is through the word and the ministry of the word in our lives. Let's go back up to the very beginning of this passage. Notice that he quotes from Psalm 95 and he recapitulates it again at the end. He begins and he quotes it fully in verses 7 through 11. And then he breaks in and quotes it again in verse 15 where he says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. That's because this is of utter importance to the author. Look at the very first sentence in verse 7. Before he begins the quotation, let's consider what he says. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice. Now, as I said a moment ago, this is not simply a psalm recounting what happened in the lives historically of the children of Israel. Because now this is a historical text from the Old Testament that is being taken by an author in the New Testament and applied to the lives of Christians. So that it has a very different bearing and force in our lives. What's he saying? He is applying that call to worship historically that, by the way, was used in the worship of the Jewish people as they gather for worship. It was a call to worship. They, they would have known this text by heart. It would have meant a great deal to them in their lives. They would have been well acquainted with the sin of unbelief and wickedness in their fathers back at Meribah and Massah and all of the things that happened there. And so it says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, he is encouraging these Jewish Christians based on that text to listen to the voice of God. To listen, to heed his words. Heed his words. Friends, I I will tell you that if you want to hope in Christ, if you want to be steadfast against the deceitfulness of sin, if you do not want to have found in you and in us an evil and unbelieving heart, one of the best things that you can do is to heed the word of God. Give attention to it. Psalm chapter 1, blessed is the man who's whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and upon it he meditates day and night. Give heed to the word of God. We're called to listen. Listen. Today, if you will hear his voice, listen. Notice also that it is spoken not simply by some historical author. Therefore, he says, as the Holy Spirit says. So it is the word of God coming to us through the Holy Spirit. Right? That's good Uh, theology on the scriptures. That is what sets this book apart from any other. It's not like a commentary. It's not like the the, the best book that you have read uh, by your favorite Christian author. This book is different. It is the breath of God. It is the words of God himself written through men, imperfect men, but by the power of the Holy Spirit who led them along under the inspiration of the Spirit. And the author of Hebrews is acknowledging that for these Jewish Christians. Therefore, listen to God who speaks by the Holy Spirit in his word. And friends, that's a testimony that we all need to hear. You know why? Because most churches today don't care much for the word of God. When was the last time as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that you opened it and read it? Beyond what we do here, beyond your Sunday school lesson, when was the last time that you said, God, I I, want to hear what you would say? 
I, I need to know how you would lead and direct. And, and, you, and you busted open a Bible. And you prayed over a text and you asked God to speak by His Spirit to you. Friends, He is encouraging us that if we have any hope of leading the Christian life well, not of falling away into unbelief, as the difficulties of this life come, that we would be encouraged by listening to God through the Spirit in the Word. Friends, let us give credence to the Word of God in everything that we do. That's the first encouragement. The second one, though, I love. Not only the Word does He give us for our preservation, He gives us the saints. Brothers, notice the language, take care, brothers, verse 12. Then as he comes down in verse 13, after giving the stern warning, he says, but exhort one another every day. As long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened. That is, that none of us may give in to the deceitfulness of sin. That none of us may begin to believe its lies and to look for hope there. But that all of us might be encouraged to continue believing in Christ, who we profess to believe in now. That we might continue that. Not only are we to give credence to the word, we are to find encouragement from the saints. That means that we have to be with one another. Asking about the things that are going on in one another's lives, encouraging one another in the word, praying for one another, bearing one another's burdens. You say, well, why does, why does this help? How does this help me to be steadfast in the Christian life by involving myself with brothers and sisters in the church, with the saints of God in the body of Christ? How is it that this helps me? Well, there's a few ways, at least. This is not a complete list, but at least, just quickly, a few things Number one is, friends, we provide one another accountability. There's nothing like uh, having one of your brothers and sisters in Christ to, to, to pray for, for you and with you because of some sin in your life. There's nothing like having one of them to, in light of maybe someone else's failure, maybe some minister's failure, maybe some elder's failure, maybe some Christian's failure that's turned their back in unbelief and walked away from the church. And one of your brothers in Christ who's sitting with you and you're contemplating and mourning the, the loss of that brother and, and your brother looks to you and says, don't, don't fall like that. Don't give in to that sin because it could be me. It could be you. Provides accountability. Secondly, it provides camaraderie. Friends, there's nothing like being together. To know that you struggle as well. To know the difficulties of your life are significant as well. To know that the temptation we face, we do not face alone. There is strength in numbers. There is hope in brotherhood. Friends, let us understand that the camaraderie we feel as brothers and sisters in Christ is real. It's extremely difficult to fight in a war when you fight alone. Let us take great hope. And I I don't just mean misery loves company. That's not my point. But I think there is very real hope and confidence that is given to us in the face of our struggles in knowing not only that there are people there to bear those struggles with us, but that there are people around us who love Jesus that face the same struggles. Thirdly and lastly, and I think this is extremely important as well, how is it that it can be an encouragement to keep on believing in Jesus and his grace? and its sufficiency for our hope and salvation? Think about this. Your brother is suffering mightily under the providence of God. The difficulties in his life are real. Perhaps his 
family has been broken apart. Perhaps his or her spouse has left him. Perhaps the job that he has enjoyed for years and years and years has departed. Perhaps his children have gone astray. Perhaps his physical health has left him. Whatever the case may be, the struggles of his life are real and are weighing down upon him. And he begins to wonder if Jesus is enough. He begins to wonder, God, where are you? God, why do I deserve this? God, I love you and I've tried to honor you with my life and this is what I get. Maybe I shouldn't be looking to you for hope and salvation. And then you walk in and you pray with him and you encourage him, brother, don't stop believing. And you share with him about the struggles in your own life or her. And you bear those burdens with him and you hold him accountable to his profession to believe. And if nothing else, he cannot deny that God has been with him. Because you were a means of God's grace in his life. If nothing else, friends, our presence together and our presence in one another's lives is proof positive to the suffering Christian that God has not forgotten me, that God has not left me because he's given me you. And I may not always like you. (laughs) get to pick and choose the graces of God and how they're evident in our life. But I cannot deny Someone that loves me, someone that is concerned for my faith and well-being has come alongside of me. Someone that is encouraging me to trust in Jesus and is using the word of God to do so. They have come alongside of me to help me. Regardless of my tendency and temptation, it is evidence that God is still there. Friends, let us seek then to be a means of grace in others' lives. I want to close you with one story about how that, how that can be effective. And there, there are so many examples of what that could look like in the Christian life. Um, and, you can, and you can think of many, I'm sure, but, but in a prior ministry, in, in my ministerial life, uh, it, it's often as a pastor that I get difficult calls with regard to physical ailments. Someone has uh, had a stroke or a heart attack and they're in the hospital or someone's undergoing a surgery and they, uh, th- th- they call for, for me or a pastor to come and to be there with them, particularly someone in our church. And there was a, a lady, and I'm not going to give you her name. She, she means a great deal to me to this day. Uh, she, she, she was uh, a part of our church, and uh, she had had a difficult life. And as a result of that difficult life, just temporarily speaking, a lot of difficulties, but uh, one of the results of that is she became a, a fairly hard person on the outside. You know, she, she was a tough nut to crack, as they say. And a lot of people thought maybe that she was extremely difficult and angry. And, and, and I can't say that, that maybe I never thought those things as well. But in all of her hardness and all of her difficulty, this sweet lady, um, her husband, who was the polar opposite, the most jolly, uh, fun-loving, easy-to-get-to-know, personable kind of, kind of guy that you've ever been around. Uh, he was having severe heart trouble. And his health began to fade toward the end of his life. And he went in to have heart surgery uh, to repair. It was elective to to repair uh, some things that had gone wrong. And uh, I had an opportunity to go and to be with them. And uh, all their family was gathered and he was in his hospital bed and he was joking and um, laughing with them. And they said goodbye to him and they rolled him out. Nothing emergent necessarily. Uh, And I left and went home. And uh, I got a call later that afternoon that all had not gone well in the surgery. And so I immediately went back up to the hospital and I was there when the doctors came out and we began to get word that there were some severe complications and that essentially his 
heart was too old and frail to withstand the surgery, and they did not know whether or not he was going to make it. And um, I had the opportunity not to offer any answers. Um, but I'll never forget sitting with that family in, in, in the intensive care waiting room there, in the surgical waiting room, uh, as, as they worked for hours and hours and hours on her husband, who loved the Lord and loved her deeply, uh, who had gone in to have an elective surgery that they, I don't think, had any, in, had any visions of never seeing him again, as her husband and God's providence was taken from her. And as she began to wonder, you know, whether or not God was there and, and whether or not God cared and, and, and how God, a God who loved her, could do such a, a thing. Um, and I'll tell you that in, in the midst of the opportunity to, to be there with her and to pray with her and to, to not have any answers other than simply to say, I want you to know that I love you and I want you to know that God cares and God has a plan and that these difficulties he brings into your life, he means for your good. I don't know what what part that played, but what I can tell you is she continues to believe the gospel today. And that she's not turned her back on God in the midst of the difficulties of her life, but that she continues to find her hope in Christ. A God that will never leave her, a God that is not struggling with heart problems and will not be plagued by death. Friends, those that are dearest to us, the things that we find to be most precious, they are all fleeting. They are all fleeting. The only hope we have is in Christ. Friends, may we, may we bear with, may we pray with, may we come alongside one another as the saints, as the people of God, to be a means of God's grace in one another's lives, to encourage each other to press on, to believe in Jesus and to never stop. Let's pray. God, Thank you for Christ, our Lord, as as we continue to look toward Christmas. We thank you for Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us. We, We pray very simply this morning now that you would help us to believe in Jesus, that we would find all of our hope and security in him, and that we would look to your word and to one another for encouragement to continue believing, that we would not fall away, that we would not reject you, or your kindness shown to us in Christ. But God, that we would trust you. In his name we pray, amen.